if I'm going to say something, have it come more from the heart. Welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable, a running podcast where we shake out and purposely go off track on any and everything related to our favorite hobby. Get ready to get uncomfortable along with our guests, because growth only happens outside of your comfort zone. Here are your hosts, Ines Babea, Jamie Chen, and Nathan Schiller. Hello, I'm Jamie Chen. Hola, I'm Ines Bebea. Hi, I'm Nathan Schiller, and welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable. Today, our guest is Peter Bromkin, a member of the Bowerman Track Club Elite, based out in Portland, Oregon, and a former digital director for Nike. Peter is also Hi. a runner. <laughs> Sorry, thanks for having no me. No problem, Peter. I, I took a little extra long pause. Um, I just wanted to say that or point out for our listeners that you're a runner who also writes about running. So you're one of these runners who lives and breathes running all day long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's a point where I'm having to realize I need to take a step back at times to gain better perspective or to just refresh because yeah, I um, have been running all my life and then I started writing some essays after major races a couple of years ago. And that's, snowballed into writing more and more frequently um, such that now I've been putting out some piece of writing weekly over the last half year and then I've also been putting pieces of writing I guess you could call them on Instagram for a couple of years now um, and just it's been interesting to follow that thread and just see where it leads I think I'm still doing that but you're right you have to step away from just thinking about it or consuming it all the time and realize when just like a bad run when you're like, well, that one's, that was not, it wasn't meant to be today. I need to step away. Well, uh, we're very excited that you're with us. You are with us today. And we are going to start with a sports legacy segment. Uh, you ran your first marathon while a senior at Tufts University in Boston, but you didn't run another one for 10 years. And while, and while you ran your first marathon at three hours and eight minutes, you actually got faster with age. And your last marathon was an incredible two hours, 19 minutes, 20 seconds. Uh, so, it only, so it's only fair that our post legacy is about time and age. In the 2008 Summer Olympics, there was a runner from Israel who was 53. So given that you are also going to celebrate your 40th year this year, I wanted to know does the success of a man at 53 making it to the Olympics give you perspective and what you have already accomplished and what you're going to be doing in, as you enter the master's category? That's a great question um, because I've been thinking about it recently and it's not something I had thought a ton about. Um, I actually reached out to a friend who has a much more scientific background and I asked him, do you think you could in your research start to find um, anything that comes up around studies that are done on how thing how the human body actually changes or how anything that's been done to sort of ground um, our understanding of ability over the years because what I realized again when you're in your 20s you don't really think about it you're in your 30s and it's going well you don't I didn't really think about it um, but as I've gotten to, towards 40 which I turned this year I realized wait a second, it's sort of assumed that I'm already on the downslope, but that's not how I feel. And then I realized, wait a second, 
all sorts of things are assumed about this sport. Like it was assumed that women shouldn't even bother to run a marathon until the eighties, you know, like the things that are absurd or um, the idea that, I mean, it wasn't long ago that pe they thought people shouldn't exercise after university, um, you know, high school, maybe ath some athletics and then university athletics. And then it was just like, Oh no. I mean, I know that on, in your podcast, you've touched on, the jogging boom of the seventies and the sixties and just realizing, Oh wait, people could be physically active later in their life and it wouldn't kill them. Um, things that we laugh at now. And so I'm sure there are very specific physical changes that, um, will become more difficult with age, but I've tried to, um, I think I'm grappling with it right now. And examples like you just threw out are wonderful to just anchor my mind and everyone's mind further out on what's possible rather than just thinking, oh, because people hadn't done it before, you know, it's not possible. You shouldn't even try. I think Meb was, uh, he continued into his 40s, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he performed great. I was at CIM actually, and I saw you cross the finish line. I was actually right there and I, I did see what you did after you crossed the finish line. And from the few feet away, I, I did, I felt your disbelief. <laughs> But because oh my gosh <laughs> yes i was watching and i was like oh my god um i because i had i had uh, yeah okay but because of the postponement of the olympics and a little time has passed do you do you see otq in the future that's you know olympic time qualifying for those yeah. you know you know and it, you know it it's a <laughs> yeah it, it, thank you it's a great i can't believe you were there it was this weird bubble um of like surreal moment that I was in. So just for some context, I came within two seconds of hitting the Olympic trials standard um, at that at the California International Marathon in 2019. And, um, you know, I've just looked at it. People have been asking me, are you going to try again? And even though I have been trying for that goal for a couple of years, um, and even though like we talked about, I'm going to turn 40 this year because things are still going well for me, which is like knock on wood. I feel healthy. Um, I feel like it boils down to just the basic question of it'd be like asking any runner, like, are you looking to improve again? <laughs> yeah. Are you hoping to set a PR? And you think what, like, how dare you ask me? That's sort of the, the fiber that connects all of us. I mean, now I understand that people enter different life stages or ages, you know, they, set things like decade PRs, like the fastest they've run in a decade, or they take on new challenges based on, you know, just life changing. But I'm still feeling like, yeah, I'd love to PR. I, I don't know. Um, it feels like the smallest, sometimes it feels like the smallest um, thing of importance in the, in the world that we're living in right now. And then other times I, you know, sort of yo-yo back to, well, it was this goal that gave my training and my days meaning every day for years on end. And so um, I'd say I'm actually back to a good place of feeling like, well, if races do happen this year, I'd like to be prepared for them. And so I'm refocused again on getting strong to that level where I could, you know, take on a marathon build and try to set a personal best, which at the very basic level is just what I would be trying to do. Um, and so in that regard, I try to simplify rather than 
um, think too much about, you know, the Olympic trials and where would they be and what would the times be um, at the basic level, it would be um, just trying to do better than you've done before, which is, you know, the thing that I think a lot of runners identify with. I mean, for you doing better than you've done before is, is just a given, isn't it? Because, <laughs> you, <can say laughs> you know, you get faster every year. So what would you say were the biggest lessons that you learned from the first uh, Olympic trial, trying to get to that Olympic trial, and then for the third one? What do you think was like, now that you've had a chance to like, reflect? Yeah, I mean, the first time I went for it, I had run 2.23 and I just thought, okay, what would it take to go a couple minutes faster? And it was, I personally actually found it really freeing because it seemed like such an absurd goal that um, it, it allowed me to step back and think, okay, let's take stock of all the things I'm doing, the mileage I'm doing, the strength training I'm doing. Let's take a look at my diet um, and just think, how would I make these things better? And not such that like my life depends on it, but just like, oh, this is fun um, because I'd been doing it a while and I just thought, wouldn't it be fun to take on a, a big challenge? And um, if I fail, then so be it. Um, it'll be all right. And so the first time I went after 219.00, um, I wasn't sure how close I would get. Uh, I wasn't sure if I would like, I mean, a part of me was like, what if like two hours in your body just like shuts down if you're trying that hard and you just have to walk it in? Like we've seen people do that, you know, it's totally a possibility. And so then to get close, I ran 219.40 in 2018. It was, that was far enough out that I didn't feel like true disappointment because I didn't really like, I, I never it felt like, oh, it was so close I could have gotten it. Um, I, I like felt myself getting slower. I looked at the splits and I was about on pace at 23 miles. And then I got a little slower, slower. Um, so then I, it was a really fun year in hindsight. And that it's been weird to be in a quarantine year because it means that I get, I spent all of 2020 kind of thinking about 2019 and what a special year that was because it was in contrast to a year at home. Um, but, but just like those lessons of um, doing more of the strength and more of the running and um, just going into it with the confidence that like, you know, this isn't crazy. It's going to take um, a good day and it's going to take things to line up, but it's not. Um, and so that was pressure, but it was also excitement. Um, and I saw it as I wrote a piece called qualifier queasiness um, in the summer before 2019, which was all about how like it took the OTQ um, goal to scare the crap out of me to for me to really understand my friends who want to uh, qualify for Boston and who like you know are almost afraid to say it to me and they think like Peter's gonna laugh at me and I'm like no why would I laugh at you, you know like that's a that's a wonderful thing to think about I mean and then I'm just when people tell me that I'm super curious like so how are you thinking about it you know how does it relate to your your lifestyle or or your schedule or like how, what are things you think you need to improve on? And just to hear other people's stories of how they think about, oh, I'm going to map out a two-year progression to that big goal. I started to very much identify with um, once I was very close to the OTQ, because previously when you're in sort of these middle numbers, you can kind of pick a number that just sort of makes meaning for you, but isn't really like no one else is going to, if when I was going, trying to get below 250 or 240, 
um, when I was ready for it, then I would say like, oh, I think that's my goal. But if I wasn't, it, there was no one else asking me. Whereas I know that my friends who say are like 320 marathoners, people are like, hey, you're thinking of cutting off 20 minutes and breaking three and qualifying for Boston? They're like, maybe, like, God, that's kind of an aggressive question. Um, Peter, um, I want to ask you, you mentioned your writing and in some of your recent writing, you talk about um, the strength training that you do. And a theme that comes up is about your ego and how as a runner, you want to do so many miles. And when your friend, I believe, suggested, you know, some strategic strength training, you at first, were th your, your instinct was to say, no, no, we don't, we, runners don't, you know, do that. But deep down, you understood that maybe there's something there. And in the end, it really helped you. And you've touched on that in a number of posts. I'm wondering if you um, see some genesis of yourself as a runner from your cross country days to um, where you are today with having this more, you know, global and almost like philosophical perspective on um, your own limits and maybe your own hmm. running mortality in some way. That's a good, that's a big question. I mean, I think I, the benefit I have had uh, being at this running game, it's not like I've been, a, you know, I meet 60 year olds, 70 year olds, and they're like, you're still early in this, but I, like for having focused on it for these number of years, um, I've had a few opportunities to see how the way I was doing it was only going to get me so far, you know? So like in college, I always say like, I just loved it so much. And I thought like, if you want it more, it'll like, it'll become a success. And mostly I just broke myself. I injured myself a lot. Um, and so I got to get over some of those hurdles that are classic runner experiences uh, years ago, um, just because I just wanted to stay with my friends. I was like, whatever they do, I'm going to do. Um, and when I came back to it after years away, I kind of spent my twenties, not, I, I was still running uh, a few days a week for fun, but not really focused in like a track team kind of way. Um, just, um, just jogging out every few days. And so when I came back to it, I thought if I'm going to do this, I really don't want to be injured. So I really want to be more honest with myself of like, am I almost getting injured? Um, then I need to back off. Whereas kind of when I was younger, I was like, you just pour it on, you do more and you do more. <laughs> and part of that was like, I wasn't always injured, but sometimes I was entirely fried. I re distinctly remember a few races where, man, I was tough before and I had done all the training, but they would be like, come to the line. And I'd be like, I could take a nap right now. Like I am so exhausted. <laughs> um, and so getting a sense for some of those feelings that while in like the singular make a lot of sense, you need to run more miles, you need to, you know, you know, like do faster workouts. Um, you can't just do all of them all the time is what I come came to learn. And so this is the most frustrating thing that I'm trying to describe that I, I think at some point I might try to write about, but it's very elusive because is that like, what's the difference between a good feeling of fatigue or uh, tiredness or sort of pain in running versus a bad that leads. And I think it's very personal to like how your body feels and also how, um, what type of injuries you're prone to, you know, some people like their, their bones break or their foot gets sore or their, um, I just over the years have gotten a better sense of the ways that I get hurt. And so to try to check my ego and say, I know you want to do more, or you already have 12 stenciled in, you know, written in for tomorrow, but like, you're the only one who cares about that. And, um, part of my, part of what's helped is my friend group. Um, we, 
my team, but I really think of them as my friend group. Like we meet up twice a week and then the, the other five days of the week, we really each do whatever um, we need to do. And we have guys on the team who, you know, back before COVID days would like swim once or twice a week. And some guys who go on stationary bikes and some guys who run like 110 miles a week. Um, so you start to see like, oh, on Strava or online, we can all see what each other are doing. But really, um, once you come together that one or two days a week, that's, those are the days that matter. And so it's about like checking your ego those other days and putting in the work, but not over doing it. So it's a long way of saying like, when I start to think about what it's going to take as I get older, I've, I have started reaching out to people to say like, should I, um, you know, sh should I supplement more strength training in different, in new ways? Should I supplement some of my running with cross training, which I wouldn't love. It wouldn't be the thing that would come, you know, first to mind, but if it would allow me to succeed more at the things that I want to succeed at, um, you know, I have friends who are like, I just want to, I'm done with trying to run fast. I just want to be able to jog a few miles in the morning to clear my mind. And I'm like, Hey, mm -hmm. I totally get that goal. Um, so does, does, does time at some point become your, your enemy or, or is time, <laughs> are you fighting with time? Is time with you? Cause and I, I feel like, you know, for you mm -hmm. time and your career has been such a big um, element. I feel like we should, we should have named um, this episode Peter Bramka as Dr. Strange, <laughs> you know, because he is able to go back in time. So for you, does this time become, is it a guide mm. or that, is it an enemy? Is it your nemesis at some point when you're thinking about all your goals? I think I'm still, to be totally honest, I think I'm, what's intense is I feel like I'm beginning to find out. Um, I'm just um, at this moment of, it wasn't even like I have a bunch of teammates who truthfully are like um, anywhere from like 25 to 35, let's say. And we don't even really know, you know, we're just sort of like, we don't, uh, I have a sense of how old different people are, but I don't, uh, or their experience level, but we do a pretty good job of having like just people taking people at their face and they show up and they um, just sort of slip in with the group and try not mm. to, judge each other too much about like, well, you haven't done this a lot. Or, I mean, we have guys, we have a guy who's quite quick now. He spent all of 2020 just getting faster and faster. I didn't see him much. And now he's seems to be faster than me. Um, but he didn't run in college. And so we would sometimes give him a hard time. Like, Oh, you're kind of scared of going to the track or scared of um, you're intimidated by things that we have done, you know, since we were little kids, but like, come on, it's like, jump on into the water. You can do this. Like, it'll be okay. And not building it up too big. Um, and so I wrote a piece last week about how, like, the biggest thing I'm struggling with is I don't want people to treat me any differently if I turn 40 or 41. Um, because I think, like, the beauty of the, the moments that we create as a team are just the chance to, like... Um, have everyone show up and slip in. And I mean, the, at our best, we don't even judge each other if you need to drop out of a workout or we have friends who are, I have so much respect for some of my friends just truthfully aren't as fast as us. So they'll do part of the workout and then they'll mm. take extra long breaks and then they'll jump back in. And one thing I've loved about the group of friends that I've been training with for the last couple of years is there's not a lot of ego or need to prove each other, prove it to each other um, on practice days. 
and there's just this good is, camaraderie. This is the Bowerman Tri Club Elite. Is that the name of your? your yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we, I mean, what's funny is we, because we have, so the Bowerman Track Club is a sponsored team by Nike that works out on the Nike campus. And we're just the amateur group, sort of, there's a mm. children's team around Portland, there's a master's team, and then there's the sort of working professionals, um, post-collegiate team, and that's what we fall into. And people will email us, email us from around the world and say like, how can I be a part? Do you have time cutoffs or do you have like standards to enter? And I'm like, well, it's really about showing up. Um, so this is when we practice. And if you, um, we've taken a great pride in not just kind of like putting a Jersey on someone we think is going to be quick and finish on the podium at a local race, but just say like, Oh, if they, they show up frequently enough and they're a teammate of ours, um, then here's a Jersey. Um, and it's not so much about, you know, saying one thing or another. And it's more, I had a friend who he's like, yeah, I, I told people that I, um, you know, I just sent you an email and that's how I got on the team. I'm like, but yeah, but then you showed up at 6.30 in the morning on a Wednesday and then 8, 8.30 on a Saturday and you did that every week for like two months. <laughs> like you're kind of overlooking the important part of what creates the community and creates the trust. So even though you didn't run for like 10 years after your first Boston Marathon and then you ran uh, again, like I want to say 2014, how did you even think about, why did you even think about joining a team and not just like a regular team, like you guys are elite, you compete, oh. your, your level of competition is, is up there. I know. So why did I know you the, decide the, to the get word, back into it? It's a great question. I, so I was running, um, and as I've listened to different um, guests that you've had on your podcast, I, it's made me reminisce about some of it. So I was running a couple of days a week and I moved back to Portland to work at Nike, like you mentioned. And then I started running with a group called the Stump Runners, which is just a, Portland is called Stumptown because they cut down a bunch of trees um, to build the downtown. It's like the nickname for the city. Um, and I had kind of, like I mentioned, like burned myself out on the idea of track workouts. And I judged myself a lot. I thought like when I didn't succeed at those workouts that it was, uh, I wasn't trying hard enough or I just had a lot of baggage around trying to do that and not succeeding. Um, but I knew I still liked running. And so I would show up to some of these runs with, which was one of Portland's first sort of like run crews, if you were to distinguish between a, a track club and a run crew. Um, and I just enjoyed how it wasn't a group of people that talked much about times or, you know, they would run sometimes the, uh, the Chicago marathon or some of them had run New York, but it wasn't a, it wasn't that serious about racing. Um, it was just about like showing up twice a week, Tuesdays and Saturdays to get some running in. And I had run with friends over the previous, maybe like five, seven years, but I hadn't really run with the group. And so then I started showing up more often. And then the Boston bombing happened at the 2013 Boston Marathon. And I had friends at that race and I texted them and made sure they were okay. And that to me was a really, I think it was a big moment for a lot of runners. Um, obviously who run Boston, they can picture it. Um, I used to live in Boston. And I just realized as a runner, I was 32 at the time. And I thought I'm still capable and I'm just like, I'm just running out these years of my life. I'm just letting them 
go to waste. I'm not really pushing myself and I have a whole lifetime to um, just jog, but I'm not even really maximizing the ability that I have. I have all these, I had a sense that there were all these experiences I could be having that I was just kind of skipping because I was afraid of trying and failing or afraid of like wanting it again and not succeeding. And so then I, because I'd stayed active, I was able to qualify for Boston 2014 and I ran that race and it was amazing. Um, it was this huge experience. And then I, um, then I started to slip into this routine um, of running like one or two marathons a year. But you know how I mentioned that the Bowerman Track Club Elite, we have like a fairly low ego group of people. I, in the interim, was like, I need some people to run with. And I went to a couple of local track workouts with guys I didn't know. And it was, it was incredible and in how horrible it was. So it was like <laughs> the worst of a group of guys who show up at five and they just try to, I use the term like big dog, like they just try to show up every rep. You know, we'd have people like basically kicking it in like the end of a race on like the third <laughs> rep. And you're like, who is that guy? I mean, I mean, I've never met, he's had his name's Nathan. I don't know. But then you'd have guys like ha quitting halfway through the workout who had just kind of surpassed you in the previous intervals. And I'm like, oh dear. Um, and it was horrible. <laughs> um, and I thought if this is what track workouts are about post-college, like I'm not about this. But at, so, at the about, yeah. Well, speaking of track, did you run track in high school? So I ran track in high school and also played soccer and really I guess I should have mentioned that like I grew up in Oregon in the eighties. And so I was like, I've asked my dad who was a runner back in the day, you know, when my first races were and he, he's like, Oh, you know, we brought you to some, like the kids fun run in like, you know, the mid eighties. It was just like this, it was this emerging thing of like, um, it was before they had some of the, like the, the kids one K sprints and such. So it was like a, the one mile run for little kids. And then I, ran middle school track meets so like those are some of the, like my earliest fondest memories of just like being fast so so what's interesting and let me just talk about some like i mean my perception of running i mean i came in running late in life but when i see long distance runners i tend to see white men in america you know besides you know the kenyans and the ethiopians but when i look at american run long distance runners i see white men and when i look at track i tend to see a lot of like even in the olympics you see it's mostly black men who are dominating the track and since you started in track when did you start noticing that it's really mostly white men in america going long distance versus black men staying at track that's it's really interesting because if you go to so i got to both observe it um, I did some myself growing up, but then my little brother, he's five years younger than me and he was quite good in middle school. And so we would go to his middle school track meets and you could see many cultures converging at the same events with, you know, the white kids running distance run distance events, like the mile and the two mile, I guess is the distance for kids. Um, and then all different types of races, like running the sprints, running the 200, running the 60 meters. And so you go to these meets and there's some, they're quite diverse in their total makeup, but then they start to break down by like which events different cultures choose, um, which I, I think is really interesting in and of itself, because mm. then if you, you map that onto road running and obviously some of those events just 
like kind of disappear. Um, Why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, I think it's what people, I mean, to be totally honest, I've been curious to know where you and your audience and guests might take this because I think that is a really central question around like jogging um, in its classic sense of like being a part of the, you know. Well, you were in marketing, right? You know how it is. Yeah. You can move the market based on the content that you create. So maybe coaches moved kids a certain way because they felt, or maybe they have their own internal bias of they, I see this kid. I think he's going to be good doing this. What do you think? Oh, sure. I'm sure there's some definite confirmation bias and like some, um, some mapping onto what's happened before, for sure. I mean, I think the, I'm, I'm just trying to think like, if I go to a, a meet in Boston, what you'll see is the large Ethiopian community come out for track meets and cheer like crazy for like the world's best distance runners that come to those meets. And as a person living in Boston, like it's a pretty, it has its like different segregated communities and think like, oh, I knew we had some Ethiopian people, um, Ethiopian American or, you know, immigrants here, but they're out in full force to cheer on like the sport that they, and the, you know, members of their mother nation that they are like very proud of. And so it's just, and whereas, you know, the Americans are looking at it like, oh, um, that's interesting. Like that passion for the 3000 meters. I'm not sure. Like, I didn't even know that was an event, you know, like we were here for the mile. Um, so it's, I do think there is some, um, I'm not sure where to take this actually. I mean, I, I don't know oh, that. Peter, uh, I have a question like um, following up on this. I don't know if you listened to our episode with uh, Gary Corbett. Ted Corbett's mm. son, but he was saying mm -hmm. that one of his ideas that he'd heard that was back in the 60s that a lot of coaches had the responsibility of pushing um, black athletes who wanted to pursue distance into track, maybe against their will. He didn't say anything specifically like name names, but it was an interesting mm. idea and something that had come through his research and maybe his own experience. I was wondering if you ever saw stuff like that happening. Um, I mean, you know, I also ran track in high school, like just for a couple of years, I was more of a soccer player, but I certainly saw that, you know, the same sort of stuff where like it, there was, you know, track was for, there it was a lot of black kids. And when you got to the mile and the two miles, a lot of white kids. And I never saw it, like people being pushed in one direction. I think it was, you know, more cultural, but I don't really know because I wasn't in people's, you know, homes and in those other teams um, you know, locker rooms, but have you, you know, detected any of this stuff? Do you see that? Um, do you, do you have any teammates who are black runners at the cross country and marathon level? Um, you know, to that last question, no. Um, and I do question this whole conversation, not just today, but sort of like this larger conversation has made me think, back to those experiences growing up and thinking like, when were those, um, I guess I, subliminal? I like, say again, subliminal, subliminal. Yeah, when were like, when were they seen as, um, welcoming or discouraging, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and what the, there was a, 
you know, I went to Tufts University, which was in some ways diverse, but is very, you know, wealthy and like very expensive and um, has, you know, um, its own like upper Northeast sort of vibe. Um, and I think as years have gone on, there was one example where a member of our team um, had Haitian heritage and he had a t-shirt that he used to warm up in that had the Haitian flag on it. Um, and we always thought like, oh, that's his thing. And okay, that's fine. I think we were raised in the era of like, quote, like colorblindness of like, yeah, just see everyone how they were and like, that's fine. Um, and then I'll never forget, there was this one moment where like he had left it somewhere. And so then someone um, like brought it to the meet. Um, I, I, somehow he didn't have it and he brought it to the meet and the kid, I think didn't mean any harm by it in his own sense, but put it on and sort of showed up like, hey, look, I have your shirt. And um, the kid who had misplaced it got very upset and like confronted him and said like, that's mine. And we got to see like, oh wow, there's a lot more going on here than we were like aware of acknowledging. Um, and at the time we, what's so fascinating is like at the time we knew a lot was going on and that there was a lot we didn't understand. And then years gone by, you know, we've revisited that as friends and thought like there was so much more going on in that moment than we can even appreciate now. Um, but again, like we thought, we saw this individual as he was from Connecticut, he'd gone to a prep school, he was now at Tufts, you know, and you think, um, I think for any number of reasons, we thought like we, we judged him and his level of how we thought he fit in or how he felt he fit in just at a surface level of like, he's been, you know, um, what did you think? So did it's you like, think that he fit in? Cause I just describe him as like, you know, he, he went to prep school. He grew up in Connecticut. He's now in Tufts, you know, a very elite, like you said, like influential, expensive school. Like, so does he fit in? And then does, because he's in now, do we like negate like his heritage? Because now he's one of mm -hmm. us, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you said, like you grew up in the culture in the time where it says we don't see color, but yeah, that in itself is like and a I, microaggression. Yeah, and I, I think that was very much a real reality of, um, I mean, I've asked my parents, like, was that just the common way of working? Like, I remember those, um, it just felt like a very, I have trouble figuring out how to describe, like, how I remember it versus how I'm seeing it now that it's in the past. Um, because it seems in hindsight, like a very safe um, sort of like redo um we'll just call this all equal and so then you can adjust you can judge someone's actions purely based on um well they're here i know they have um you know i'm gonna because to be honest like he and i had confrontation around were around like the specific words used or the specific actions in that moment um like and what? just like his like so he reacted negatively to the you know, shirt being worn by this other teammate. And I said, like, you can't speak to him like that. And I think there was like, there was a lot of hot headed, like, 
college, collegiate athletic, you know, maleness happening. Um, ironically, um, we were then both, it's funny, I hadn't thought about this story. We were both sort of like temporarily put, he and I, so I was the captain of the team or one of the captains of the team at the time. And I like stepped in and said like, we need to break this up. And then, you know, he had words with me. And so like, we were both uh, suspended from the team and had to go see a counselor. Um, and we both went like super begrudgingly. This was, you know, years ago and I didn't know much about therapy or like counseling or um, who knows. And we kind of both went like, this is going to be the biggest waste of time. Um, but fine, we'll do it in order to get reinstated to the team. Um, Cause he and I didn't see eye to eye. And I am not saying like we ever became best friends, but like, I think we had like the last slot of the day at four o'clock and by five, the, uh, counselor was like, okay, so I have to leave. You guys are welcome to use the room to continue to talk because we had found a lot of common ground. And like, I think it's very basic stuff around, oh, I was assuming so much about you and you were assuming so much about me. Um, and it was one of those like begrudging admissions that like maybe this methodology actually <laughs> really does help um, to like take the space to understand each other. Um, but even that I look back and think, oh, I was still um, I think only appreciating his perspective from a, um, from a like very, from maybe, maybe that like view I had had, which was like, I will just assess him for like the words he's saying right now. And just assuming like, if he's here, I'm not like, he belongs to be here and I'm not going to I'm just going to assume that he feels entirely included in this culture. Um, I, I mean, I think I'm, what you're hearing is me struggling to figure out like how to find the words to describe how I would think about it differently now. And I think it's evolving. No, like I, I think this is why we want to have these conversations. And like, as I said before, you know, we get to go back in time, you know, something that happens to you when you're like 22 and now like when you're like knocking on 40, like now that you're a father, you've learned, you've had experiences, you're able to have like a different perspective. And then given, you know, the year that, 2020 was now you you can look back at the story and feel like oh wow you know there are things then that like I didn't I wouldn't have like what's the big deal it's just a t-shirt but like for him is that mm -hmm. you know it's his culture you know like and I don't know what is it like for you when you go to the corrals like when the elite teams like does everybody look like you have you ever been in a situation where like you were like just one surrounded by different people you know, I mean, is, does that, how, how, what do the corrals look like? I feel pretty comfortable in running spaces because I know I grew up with it. I know, like, I'm very aware of how welcome I am in those spaces. And I know that like anyone giving me flack, you know, if it was that I'm not fast enough or I'm not something or some hmm. of that, like that, that has more to do with them than it does with me because so, like, yeah. Yeah. Peter, like what's so interesting about how you're, speaking and the year we just came out of is that 2020 was a, a really crazy year for all the reasons we all know and in running you can you have all these things that are happening um at once and the the injection of racial turmoil like at the you know center stage in the u.s puts another layer on top of the stuff you're going through trying to figure out like where you stand and how to deal with um, your running life and you posted um, I believe on Instagram right a, mm. a 
a shot of Ahmed Arbery um, mm-hmm. with uh, a really, you know, incisive look in words as to what this might mean for you. So I'm wondering why you did that. Yeah, I was mentioning um, how, so trying to rewind. When I saw the video of Ahmad getting shot, um, I, I thought it was interesting. I reached out to a few people, like I think we all did. And I had a couple of people tell me like, this is horrible, but it's not a running thing. Um, it's just, it's like related to, I mean, this person just felt like it related to a systemic, um, mistreatment of black people and black men in America. Um, I felt like watching the video, I very much experienced it as a runner, you know, I, uh, very much the first part and even his, the movement of his body. Um, and what was interesting was, I originally posted like, I have, it made me think of all the times I've traveled and just, I can run anywhere and feel comfortable anywhere. And I've known that's a privilege, but like to put any sort of mention of like, there was doubt that he should be running there is laughable at its face and not laughable. I mean, it's beyond absurd because Mm -hmm. I know. And I'm, and so like all these memories come rushing back to me and I'm like, so I mentioned like the number of times I've, you know, gotten lost at dark and still felt safe and known that that would be okay. Or the, I mean, I have run on, I mentioned I've run onto private property because of like misinterpreting a Google map and knowing like, I should not be here. Um, but I'll probably be okay. You know, like, and it'll probably be fine. And so that's what I was trying to get out initially. Um, and then a really meaningful comment from a woman said, you know, show his face on your page. And I thought that was an interesting, at first, like, okay, um, you know, why or tell me more. And she's like, it, it holds meaning if in white spaces like your Instagram page, which, you know, to be clear, that's not exactly, you know, it's, it's, you could say it's a privilege to not have to think about my Instagram page as a white space all the time, but that's what it is. Um, it, but it holds, she said, it holds power if, if you, you know, give him that space. Um, and I said, I'd be happy to, you know, like, um, if that's, if that has meaning, um, because I feel like this is important. Then this subsequent video comes out. I thought this was fascinating, um, where he, there was a video right of him walking onto a construction site. Um, I think pre just moments before, um, which just like hit me like a pile of bricks because I think some people were using it as like, see suspicion. And I grew up in a world where my father would say, look, that house is being built. I want you to learn how houses are built. So we would poke around like all sorts of, you know, places that we technically weren't supposed to be, but also we're just sort of like, you know, poking in the way that I, we live in such a weird world where you're able to like, see these things that someone else is doing that you will never meet. Um, so the things to- that were normal for you, or normal Absolutely. for you to do, people use that against him after he's dead to criminalize him. To say like, see, and you're like, no, see. I mean, because in the same way that I identified, I think like a lot of runners did, you see the way his body's moving and it's horrific. And I, I mean, it's hard to revisit, um, but you identify as a runner to like that movement. Then to even see a video of like, just the way, if I recall, like he's sort of like poking 
around, you know, looking around like you would as a curious person in a space and to think, oh, I now 10 times like see, I don't suppose to know this person, but I identify with like the way they're moving. And um, you can't, I don't think you're already at a maximum of um, rejecting and, you know, any negative conclusion, you know, any reasoning, but just to say, um, oh, wow. Um, so yeah, I think there was a feeling of if, if it can be, if it can do any good, whatever space I have to say that, you know, these are privileges that I've had and I'm going through a process of better understanding what those privileges are. Um, I still don't think it's even close to enough of anything to move the needle, but maybe it starts to start naming things. Um, you didn't do the black square. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I'm curious. So I many love, people I, I never expect posted it and that was all they did. That's all I'm going to say, but you didn't uh, post the square. I think I was, I was mentioning this. Did we talk about this? I said, I woke up on the West coast having posted a couple, again, even this conversation kind of throws me off because I'm happy to post. I think I, as we're sitting here because we're people who love to converse. I'm also not thinking that because I put up a couple of Instagram posts, like people would be like, that was great of you. And I'm like, that, I feel, that feels like an overstatement. You know, like it doesn't be, it feels like it's important to have conversation. Conversation can move minds and hearts, but also. Um, so then I woke up on the West Coast and I saw a bunch of black squares and thought like, what is this? And then did a little more research into what was happening. And I thought, I don't know what that is. And all I know is the words that I've already put out, I feel very good. I feel very confident that they express how I feel. And I don't know what this new thing is. And it feels like, I mean, I'm not here to like blast anyone who did or to make, you know, say some, one thing or another, but I thought that doesn't seem like something that, um, I need to necessarily take a stand on. I would much rather, um, if I'm going to say something, have it come more from the heart. I respect that. No, I but think I think that that makes, that makes a lot of sense because, um, like you said, like when even the words that you use, like you say, like the examples that you just gave, like the things that you, for you are like, wow, I know I'm lost. I'm trespassing. I'm in somebody else's property, but I'm going to be okay. You know, and then you definitely put that next to, you know, his story. Like that could have been you at any moment, but you, you are able to walk around and know that you're going to be fine. You know what I mean? So I think that mm -hmm. says a lot more than, because at the end of the day, like you are willing to have the conversation, which is really what matters. Like, so like, I think my, my follow-up was going to be, did this conversation carry on to your teammates? Did it make you think about the places that you guys go to? And like, did you even talk to each other about it? And also to your son, like, is this a conversation that you have with him already? Yeah. I mean, that's just amazing. Sorry, the two parts of what you just touched on. Yeah. There is a great, um, I want to, there, there's another post. Cause I, it was, I had some comments, like people being like, man, it was such a crazy year. Um, there's so many layers that I had forgotten about. There was, then there was a fast forward a few weeks and there was a response to George Floyd and someone I don't know commented on a post where I said like, I just saw this. I don't have anything 
profound to say, but this is not all right. Um, and this person I don't know said, kind of got into the like, how do you know this person is a racist, this cop? Um, and I was like, my wife knows a lot of more about how to dissect these conversations and like the layers of systemic versus individual racism. So she's a great resource. Um, she'd be a great person to talk to. And so I was like, I'm struggling with this because I know it, how I feel, but I don't know if I have the words. Um, and so then I was like, you know, and so we talked about it and I was like, you know what I'll do? I'll post that photo where I just look like the whitest dude ever. <laughs> and I'm sitting, my friend took it. And I'm like sitting, drinking a cup of coffee the day before CIM. And I just feel like when he put, even when he sent it to me, I'm like, man, I, you caught me like really looking like a, like a dude with a coffee. Um, and I just said like, all I can tell you that I feel strongly about is like this thing that you're challenging me on. It wouldn't have happened to me like the space that I occupy um, in this society is valued at a level that everyone should be valued. And I don't go through my life worrying about the police not valuing where I stand in society. Um, it's not something I, it's, it feels funny to even say because it's not something I have to think about, which is a huge privilege. Um, and so I think it's a running thing, but then it, as we saw, like it bridged, to many different um, conversations. And I had people reach out from around my life. One second. Can you finish Star Wars tonight? This is my son. Hi. <laughs> yeah, what a cutie pie. <laughs> he just, I just watched office. Star Wars last night myself. What did I watch last night? I yeah. Watched, um, Please don't tell me it was your first the, time. No, no, The Empire Strikes Back. I, I'm re-watching all of those. One of the after best. Mandalorian, after Mandalorian, there were like all these Easter eggs oh. that I didn't get. And my brand, my, my best friend is like, I don't think I love you anymore. You need to re-watch all those movies. So he can come in and talk about Star Wars. We also talked about Doctor Strange. This is a safe space. Yeah. <laughs> we're geeking things. out. <laughs> we're we're, we're totally geeking out. <laughs> um. <laughs> he always uh yeah he's wonderful um it's been fun to dive into star wars with him what i wanted to finish i was just saying because you're helping me remember what i felt last summer which was i was seeing things happen in my own experience that i felt like if i have this quote-unquote platform of my instagram maybe naming it is part of the white conversation that needs to happen and saying like how are we valued or what spaces can we go in or, and just calling out that those things are not colorblind and they're, um, they're a lot more complex than many of us white kids who were raised in the eighties were born to think about in certain ways. And so I had a lot of people who I am like friends with, but we don't stay in touch often text me from all over the country and say like, that really meant a lot to me. And thank you for, naming that part of my experience that maybe I wasn't acknowledging. Um, and so for instance, you know, like the book White Fragility got a lot of positive and negative um, in the summer. And I thought, okay, that's fine. But like, if I was to diagram in my like consulting brain out, I felt like it was an, it certainly isn't a text that needs to be like lionized across all communities and all conversations. But I found it to be like there were definitely particularly important parts for parts of, for white people at certain part of the journey. 
to just say like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, and I want to know. And so I thought this book is not infallible, but it's worth mentioning because there are so many conversations going on. And I don't think I, I mean, I would aspire to not speak, but to listen more and read more when it's beyond my community. But I felt like the things I had to say were, I, I, I kept trying to strike a tone of like, hey, this has just occurred to me or embarrassingly in the last you know, period of time has occurred to me. Maybe it's occurring to you and wow, we got a long way to go, but like, let's not just dwell on black squares. Well, it's funny that you brought so up White Fragility because that was going to be my question I was going to ask you is after reading White Fragility, I haven't read it myself. I actually, I felt that it was very, I feel that I've read pieces, but I yeah, feel it's very, I know how that feels. I feel it's very condescending, but that's another topic. After diving into that material, has it allowed you to look at people like your teammates a different way? And do you feel more empowered to actually confront them on their uh, on biases that maybe you're now seeing because I think you mentioned that you're unlearning things as a white person and so do you feel more confident yeah. do you look at your teammates differently now these conversations have been very much a part of the national conversations have been brought into our team conversations we're a pretty close-knit group of guys but also like we know each other in a certain context I would say it showed up a lot in um my friend conversations, um, if that makes sense. It's like not, not just my, maybe people who aren't runners, um, really who had spent more, we had more time. I'm also remembering this is like such a weird year because it wasn't, often wasn't in person. You know, it wasn't like we were hanging out together. Um, and so I would say my teammates, like, because we're not like a formal group that just, you know, shows up to train under a master coach, but we're like a loose collective of friends. Um, we, it was a natural part of a conversation for men who are open to it and are like looking to learn and are aware that we're not doing like maybe enough or nearly what we I think we, I would largely characterize it as like adults who are aware that we might look back and laugh at how we behaved um, in the past or even now when your years have gone by, but we're like open to learning and open to like, wow, this is um, a really big deal. And we are not in the position that we know what the best thing to do is. Um, so it's better to like thoughtful people trying to listen. I think Peter, that's how I describe it. Did you ever feel like when you were, um, working with Nike and, you know, and when you're working in the corporate world that before 2020, um, people in these spaces at the elite levels and in positions of power and management and executives were th um, thinking earnestly or just at all about racial and injustices and social injustices, or did it just never come up really? Man, it's hard to remember in terms of like, because the nuances matter and the details matter. What I'd say is, I always like to say like, I'm close enough to Nike to see many different layers. I don't see it as a monolith. And I totally respect anyone who says like, I don't want to wear the swoosh because of this example. Totally fine. Um, people are sweatshops. like, yeah, sweatshops. I mean, I grew up at the epicenter of the sweatshop era. That was 30 years ago. You know, like I, I'm not, I don't work in Nike manufacturing, but I think it's probably pretty well established that like the working conditions for Nike garments are as good or better than 
like a lot of places now as a result of that. So there's Nike tends to be at the forefront of a lot of these issues, um, not always in the positive, but like pushing boundaries, pushing manufacturing, pushing conversations. Um, and so I was there during, for instance, like it's just when you're close enough to a company like that, I think I more see it as groups of people and you think, yeah, like you, it starts to make sense how a company, which could be seen as a monolith, like can come out with the Kaepernick ad and also still have many problematic behaviors um, in other parts of the, you know, and that can have its own, that ad can have its own pluses and minuses and different communities within a, a company or within the sport can. So, I mean, I would say, I wouldn't say like, man, these things were really progressing fast uh, years ago. Um, but I would say, I don't think I have anything profound to say other than, um, you know, there's groups that are more attuned to um, progressive ways of thinking and like trying to wise up to how things are. I mean, I, I just think there's questions that are coming faster and faster in a good way. And mm. I hope they lead to something. As opposed um, to 10 years ago when maybe you just would never be having these discussions for fun at the dinner table. Yeah, exactly. And my wife, again, I keep referencing her because she is, she works at, in the nonprofit sector and she works at a company that's quite progressive. And so we live in such weird times where let's just rewind like three, four years. And she's coming home from work saying like, you know, it's been named that my organization, which is just like a classic nonprofit organization um, has white supremacy, um, roots white supremacy like mm. um you know elements um culture it has a white centered way of being and i and i you know was like white supremacy you know now you fast forward three years and you go those are the people storming the capital like that is mm. you know that was something as so there's these things that are conflated that i thought of as like rather I mean, and as we mentioned, I write a lot. So I'm like, well, words matter. What are we saying here? Um, and then, you know, Charlottesville happens, you know, not long after and you go, okay, what is the through line between, you know, white culture in America and that and hate groups? Um, it's a lot more than I know how to like, you know, put a check on, um, but it's been like really wild how all those things have come to the forefront in a way that like even being able to acknowledge that they exist and then to realize they're not just existing and needing to be acknowledged, but they, they're like actually very much at the forefront. Um, so again, I don't think I ha have the words to say to summarize it perfectly, but I feel like it is more part of what people who are thinking about American culture are thinking about and trying to ask themselves. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up like the Nike <laughs> example of like, um you know, you asking your dad why we were in a shirt that is made in a factory by kids who could be my age. And, you know, just the whole, the way the manufacturing was done before. But I think also like, it just also ties in and who are the decision makers? You know, when you're talking about like, you know, the common ad, and then we look at what happened to like Allison Felix after she gave birth and then she had to basically demand that what do you mean that my contract is going to have all these extra points that i need to perform at this level well i've already been here so again it like talks about like not just like the 
the racial aspect, but also like as a woman, I'm like, you know, when I was a moneymaker for you before I gave birth, everything was good. Um, but I think it all brings, it all, it all boils down to like, who are the decision makers that decide who has access, who gets represented, who is marketable, like who, who gets the yeah. money. I mean, in, in the terms of the conversation, I think um, my understanding, this is not like a world I was in, is that like the idea of for contract employees, which are what track and field athletes are is not part of a union it was negotiated on certain terms that are around bonuses and around um right. you know potential reduction clauses i mean this and so the idea of maternity leave i sounds like was not even part of this world's conversation like you're saying because of who was involved in making and setting the terms the frame of it until recently and then all of a sudden many companies in the sport are rushing out and saying oh wait like we can do this, like it hadn't been, and there is power in collective action and collective request. And there's power in Allison Felix asking for it. Um, and I mean, recently Molly Seidel, it came out this week that she didn't have health insurance on her previous contract. And now she's going to have health insurance on her Puma contract. So I have no interest in blasting Saucony, you know, Saucony seems like a great brand, um, but the terms of her contract, she didn't need health insurance as a young 20 year old who was on her parents' insurance. Like that's how she thought about it. So she hadn't negotiated for it or it hadn't been offered to her. I posted this on Twitter about like, hey, track and field, this young woman who's gonna go to the Olympics if it happens, like didn't have health insurance. Like we need to do better by our pro runner, quote pro runners. Um, and you don't have to skip too many skips in that conversation to get to like, well, universal healthcare and they're needing to be better healthcare for contract employees across the country. Um, I think it's like fun to, it's not fun. Like, it, I think it's like, it makes sense to villainize the brand that is in the example, but I think you pr pretty quickly pull back and be like, there should be universal maternity leave for a lot more than Allison Felix. And so that's why there was power in Allison Felix saying like, this isn't right. I knew people who said like, who know more the terms of her deal and who are like, she's a multimillionaire who didn't ask for health insurance. It's a negotiation. And you're like, well, yeah, but it's a negotiation within a certain frame. And I think what, what I like about the collective outrage is it's people saying like, this is not right. And unless we all like insist on it, it could just stay the way it was. I see the complexity and the nuance to a Nike example. Um, and I still wear a swoosh, but I am, have landed on like, I can see the good and the bad. And that's how I see the world. And that's also how I see it because I'm so close to it that I like literally know people, some who I think are doing good and some who I'm like, well, that could be better. Yeah. But like, like we're saying, I think it just, it just ties down to like, you know, the thread of the conversation. And, you know, as I said before, this is like, you know, Dr. the Dr. Strange episode of like going back in time of like the decision makers that eventually falls down, the consumer is then presented with something and you're like, well, I wanna buy the Nikes or I wanna buy the Adidas or, or the Pumas or whatever else. And, but then the images that are being used to sell this to me don't represent who I am. And I think in a sense, yeah. you, you might've gotten a little bit of the sense of like access and representation, because as you said, you, you, you mentioned your younger brother, like when you went to, to his meets, you saw the diversity, but then quickly you saw the separation. And as you got farther in your career, you saw that separation even more. 
and then it just comes down like again so that's that's long distance becomes about access to like I don't know, training camp or like going away on trips and like you went to like a very like a wealthy school, someone who goes to a community college might not get that chance. And I think that's also mm-hmm. like where we're, we're trying to figure out how we run it, how is this recommend, or let's really make it accessible to everyone and having these conversations to like, even just from you, like you, you being here, you posting about it, you saying how like, hey, I, I, I recognize that I could run into like somebody's like mansion and and not get shot. So then given like all the things that you've seen you that we all saw, and especially what happened in Portland, do you have these conversations yet with your son? How do you want to, what do you want him to not learn I, that you learn? Yeah. I mean, I think it is the best part of having a son that, a kid at his age is it's just able to be part of the conversation from the beginning. Um, and so it's talking about, and it's, it's difficult cause it's nuanced. It's not difficult cause it's hard to talk about, but it's like, um, it is literally that conflict of you want to acknowledge that not everyone has it the same. So you start to talk about like, do you know, I mean, even like the books we have are about like, they have children's books about like, um, someday is today. And it's about like the, lunch counter sit-ins and just talking about like the hero of the book being the community organizing community organizer Clara Luper who you know brings the community the black community members to say we're going to sit here and we're going to request equal rights and so like celebrating the civil rights movement for like the actions that occurred and not like it's in ancient history. I mean, the thing that I've been posting about recently that I'm just blown away by is like, I was sort of raised on like, oh yeah, the civil rights movement was like forever ago. (laughs) And I don't think anyone thinks like 9-11 was like forever ago and we're just going to forget about it. But like when I was a kid to the civil rights movement was less time than today is to 9-11, you know? And so I'm like, I think it's more about just bringing, like you're saying in that time warp manner, saying like, these are live examples of constructive ways that people have said like, this isn't all right and things need to be better. Um, And starting to talk to him about, now I will say like, I think of it as a nuanced, I don't have a perfect answer because I think it'll be evolving. I remember distinctly in fifth grade when I was, I think in hindsight, I was we had a teacher who said like, you're rich, you're, you are, you all are rich and you're um, privileged. And as a, like a fourth, fourth grader, I was like, okay. And like not knowing what to do with that, you know? And so there's ways of doing it that are not as constructive. Um, and I'm not pushing back on her to say like, she shouldn't have done that. I'm just saying like, I hope to do better in this generation to say like, what can we do? to um, make sure that more people have opportunities or to make sure that like we think more inclusively about who gets invited to these spaces. And I think it's gonna be an ongoing question, but I, I just, I have m- micro memories of being like, uh-huh, but I don't know. I think I'm getting a sense that I should feel guilty, but that doesn't feel, uh, A, it feels bad, but then also B, I don't know, what do you do with guilt versus how do you acknowledge um, that, things are not equal. Um, and so just, I mean, there was, it came up last week, right? Like I saw like live example is my son saying his favorite part of the inauguration that they saw was like, this land is your land. This land is my land. 
and then seeing, you know, many people say like in 2021, we're acknowledging, we got to be acknowledging that that's like not the Kumbaya, like perfect, you know, song that we were raised on. And so just saying, starting trying to say like, but you know, that not everyone has the same access to land and it's not, you know, given out fairly and this land that, I mean, I think the question that we've been debating is like, how do you even get into like America's history with a five-year-old? Because it's like, it, I mean, it's just, it's both graphic and horrible and it's also complex. And so I th I'd say that's something we're wading through um, because it feels like, how do you introduce that without just saying it's horrible, we're moving on. Right, because then just moving on is just, I think it, it perpetuates the cycle of like ending up where we were where we are today of like not acknowledging what has happened. So I love the fact that we can um, pl still play with time, you know, like, you know, what your father taught you, you want to think about your father, what you're going to tell your son. And then now you, your big plan for your birthday, 40 miles oh, yeah. in four hours. Oh. And what I really like when you posted that is that you want to dedicate or the miles or the time to put in with a charity or a nonprofit that is already working with, um, I don't know, maybe a disadvantaged part of the community and about getting into access to fitness, you know? So why? Yeah, it's, tell us, tell yeah, us about that. Um, it's interesting. I ran my first marathon, Boston Marathon as a charity runner. Um, to raise money for the Tufts University Nutrition School, which is like, does great research and work with communities around food. And that's something that I've, you know, like I was raised in a household that didn't talk a lot about food really. And I came to realize, oh, it's like many of these things you realize like in the eighties and nineties, we didn't know much about food and we were being bombarded with all these new fake foods. And so like, it was something that I became aware of. It's just chalk it up on the list of things that we didn't know a lot about not that long ago. Um, and so then what I realized, I had stopped fundraising for my running for many years because I thought, well, if I want to run a race, like I'll run a race. Like it doesn't need, I, I stopped associating with like, how do I use my running for a cause? Um, I just felt like I, I should give money to organizations I believe in, and then I should run races that I want to race. Um, and like, and I didn't see the connection. Um, like you mentioned, as I'm in a pandemic year, I'm trying to think about how to do something big for my 40th. And um, a challenge that I gave myself is, can I run 40 miles at six minute pace? Cause that's like a athletic challenge that stokes enough fear in me that it like gets me out the door in the morning. Um, and then I really feel like I don't know how to answer the question. So what are we going to do about um, the future? I mean, it, it sounds really dumb when I even put words to it. But um, what I know is that I feel like people who are like me, who have had a very privileged life, need to support those who are in communi communities that are already um, helping people who aren't like me. I think I, I don't... So just to say, like, I don't think I'm going to be the savior of like, I know the answer because I very much don't. When the conversations started coming up about last summer, which had been about, but like really started coming up of like running is white, um, access to running is more white than it should be, which I think I, you guys have touched on in terms of it feels very 
it feels more universal in terms of buying a pair of shoes and being able to move your body than basketball or golf or cycling. Like it just feels like it should be a, a right for all humans. And if that's not true, then what can we do about it? So I've been very much inspired by like, I've just been doing research and I've yet to really figure out where, I don't know how much money I'll raise, but like which direction it should go. But I certainly think it should start with, um, you know, I was looking at like girls on the run, black girls run girl track organizations that I've been linking to in my newsletter around like these people are doing stuff in community communities that are very unrelated to me that I think seem like worth investing in. And it's not a either, or, you know, I think ultimately for my own personal little project, um, I will like align with one nonprofit and try to say to people like these people are doing good, you should give, but it's not that like they're doing better than it, like these other people. Um, and so in doing my research, I've been super, I reached out to a friend who volunteered for girls on the run and she's like, yeah, I mean, it felt, I, um, she felt like it was a really impactful experience. Um, and then I've been watching all the videos from girl Trek, which is just like a organic community based, um, pop up around the country, um, for women to get other women out and moving in their community because they feel safer moving together. They feel safer, like generating those, um, those habits, like new habits together in spaces. Like we've talked about that, like they might not otherwise have felt comfortable going out on their own. Um, so to, to me, like, I don't know if it's, I don't purport to like, I'm going to do it perfectly, but I'm like, those start to ring all the right bells of like, it's way away from what I'm used to. And it's, um, people who it sounds like the root of it is finding people who bringing the love of movement to people who they didn't feel like it was given to them at birth um, or it wasn't, you know, and then, so yeah, I mean, it's a long way of saying that's what I'm hoping to do because I feel like there's so much glorification, you know, like I run a fast marathon as a white male and people are like, as my wife said, you know, like you kind of get celebrated by everyone we know twice a year. <laughs> And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, you run like the Boston marathon and everyone celebrates you. And then like, you run like a fall marathon and everyone celebrates you. And like, she's like, I celebrate. I'm like, I'm your number one fan, but like, it's a lot. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, it boils down to like, you know, you, and I don't mean like you yourself, but like you are the image or you or Nathan, you know, are the image of that we see of that is what a runner looks like and that's how a runner does it so i really like the fact yeah, that I, i'm running years, 11 minute miles here Inez. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah well in any case <laughs> but i like the fact that um of peter that you're you're still playing with time in this challenge you know 40 miles four hours i think um Dr. Strange will be very proud of how you're playing around with this different, um, this different moment. So we're gonna wrap it up with our last, our last segment, which is the hot mic. Yeah, Peter, if you've ever run a two minute 800, then you know those 120 seconds can be a long and painful time, but your hot mic segment, it absolutely does not have to be like that on Let's Get Uncomfortable because you get uninterrupted time to speak to our listeners however you please to wrap up the show. And no one's ever been successful in keeping it under two minutes. So Nathan, 
Do you have your clock ready? Do you have your little stopwatch? Yeah, I got my old school gym stopwatch right oh, here. Oh, nice. You can see a reflection in there. Um, right. Whenever you're All ready, right. Peter. All right, let's go. All right, so Nathan, I appreciate you your most recent comment about 11-minute miles because I listened to your different episodes and I got nervous thinking about this hot mic portion. But what I realized it, like, is the through line for me, which is that I would want to say to anyone who's listening that I really mean it when I say that pace is not what matters and what matters is getting out um, and enjoying running on whatever terms it shows up for you. Um, and really like when I talk to people who I know in Portland or around the country or like reach out from around the world, what I try to impress upon them is like, if someone's giving you grief about your pace, like that's their issue and it's, it doesn't have to do with you. And in fact, I more closely associate with people who I like to say are staring down a goal and are trying to improve and are making it part of their daily life and just are, are not so much about the numbers, but like are, are saying like, if I want to break four hours for the marathon or I want to break three hours and qualify for Boston, um, that that's something that's adds meaning to my days. And so it's important. And so it's, um, it's okay for me to care about it. And regardless of the pace, um, if someone's giving you grief, it's their own insecurity. And I have a lot more pride and association with those individuals who are, who are trying, you know, who are putting in the effort. Then I know many fast people who are not putting in the effort or many fast people who like have had kind of successful careers and have never put in the effort versus just like that mindset of I'm going to make it meaningful for me. And if you are like, I, I just hope people feel welcome because I know that like we've talked about, I feel welcome and I always have. And I hope that other people could see that the sport in that, that light for themselves. Time. one fifty-seven ten. <laughs> Peter is, is fast time, everywhere. Peter? <laughs> <laughs> I listened to enough episodes to know that people run over. So I just tried to put a <laughs> cap on myself. Well, that's a great way to end our show. Um, Peter, I want to thank you, Peter Bromka, for this illuminating discussion. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you and to hear your perspective and to help you remember some of these um, you know, insightful stories from your past. That's why we want to have guests on. And I think, you know, you're doing what you can to, to like you said in the hot mic, bring as many people in at whatever level they are. So we're going to keep going with Let's un Get Uncomfortable because that's how we'll meet our mission. Um, and as we do that, I have to thank my co-host, Jamie Inez. Inez, also still our producer. So we thank you as well. And of course, we have listeners so thank you, listeners. Uh, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks on the next episode of Let's Get Uncomfortable. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Uncomfortable. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on the App Store and follow us on Spotify.